Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 12. Uh, yeah, Romans 12. We're going to finish chapter 12 today is, is where I was going with that. Recently, um, a couple weeks ago, I, I hit a deer, like an animal, um, and uh, so I had to take my truck to the body shop, and this body shop was really proud of themselves. They would send me updates throughout the progress, and it would say, Mr. Evangelista, your truck is, and it was strange percentages, like 68% done. And it's, I got one that said, your truck will be ready at 4.53 p.m. on Tuesday. (laughs) And so I'm happy to report that after this Sunday, we will be 75% done (laughs) working our way through Romans as we end chapter chapter 12. Let me read the text this morning, and um, and then we're going to work our way through it. We're going to pray and work our way through it. I want to give you a couple truths at the beginning in just a moment, but let me, let me read the last little paragraph of Romans chapter 12. Um, by the way, I know so, I shouldn't have started. I don't know how the deer did. I don't know. It was just a little bit. I think it scurried off into the woods. I think he's probably or she's probably okay. I, I, no, I shouldn't have said that. Somebody's going to be wondering how that deer. It was dark. It was early in the morning. I'm sorry, I was where I should have been. Bambi was wrong. (laughs) Let me read Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. You know, foxes got to eat too out there. (laughs) There's a little baby fox that might have had a good meal. uh, Now I messed it all up. Listen to Paul's words to the Roman church. This, Romans 12 is so practical, so clear, but so convicting that um, I, I pray that, that we together see the beauty and the power and that the transformational nature of, of these, these words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to the people of God, written some 2,000 years ago, applicable to us today. Listen to Paul. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21 Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, I want to give us, I want you to see two 
two truths in this text, and I'm going to put them up on the screen right at the beginning. Then we're going to work our way through this text and marinate on these two truths. And here's the two truths that I want us to see. And these are these, here they are. The gospel frees us from the tyranny of self-absorption. When we see all that God has done, it orients us away from ourselves to be able to freely give our lives away for his glory. And secondly, the gospel assures us that God's justice will surely triumph. So those are the the two truths that I want us to see. And as, as we work our way through this text here in a moment, we need to be careful because if we, if we read this passage in isolation and we just sort of cherry pick and parachute our way down into this passage as if it's not part of a greater letter and in the context of a greater message that is contextually something that Paul is saying to the church, then we run the risk of really slipping into a kind of moralism and ethics that, that unhitches itself from the gospel. We need to see that Romans 12 in particular, and this last paragraph that we have read in Romans 12, is the fruit that comes from the root of the gospel that Paul has explained in, in Romans 1 through 11. This is not merely ethics or good tips on how to live. If that's the case, if that's all Romans 12, or in particular verses 14 through 21 is, then then this message could be preached by, by Gandhi in a Hindu temple. But this is a message that is, this is a text, this is an imperative that Paul gives us that is based on what God has done through his son Jesus to reconcile, to make alive a dead, lost people to himself by the work of Jesus on the cross. So, so with that in mind, and we'll, we'll, we'll remind ourselves of that as we work our way through this, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, help us with this text. May, may we not forget the gospel as we, as we search our hearts and as we think about the horizontal implications of the vertical grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. May the good news of your work of redemption to save your people, to reconcile us, may it not dead end in just theological knowledge, but may it, may it actually, may what we believe in our head warm our hearts and activate our hands. That's the, this text this morning. May, may that happen in us. And, and Lord, may, may it make us more like Christ. May we be conformed and transformed into your image by the renewal of, of our minds as we read this passage. And then for my friends that are in this room, may, may they hear not, not a message of how to live better, but, but, but may they hear the gospel and that the only way that we can live for your glory and not our own is through the good news of what you've done. So help us, Lord. Help, help my friends in this room who are believers, my brothers and sisters. And Lord, give life to people that don't know you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's work our way through this text, and we're just going to kind of come back to these two truths as we go along. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
The New Testament, in fact, Jesus begins uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount this admonition, this exhortation, this encouragement to how we as Christians should handle when we are persecuted. So what's going on in the, in the church in Rome before we think about persecution in our day? The church in Rome is, is probably a couple, when Paul wrote this letter, certainly they were being persecuted in a social sense. There was, uh, Christians were being ostracized for their beliefs. But physical persecution that we saw just really in a rampant way in the Roman Empire didn't happen. It didn't really come about until a little bit after Paul wrote this letter to the point where it was so severe that there was this emperor named Nero that you've probably heard of who was actually killing Christians, um, burning Christians at the stake in Rome to, to serve as lamps in the, the streets of Rome. And then we see progression towards the end of the century where Christians were being were being fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum, and there's this man named Ignatius of Antioch, who, as tradition has it, pastored the church in Antioch after, peace, after Peter, and he was uh, a disciple of the apostles, as tradition would have it, and actually was arrested and sent to Rome, and writes a letter to the Roman church as he's being transported from Antioch back to Rome, knowing that he is going to be fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. That's what, that's what is a few decades away. That's certainly persecution. But, but here in this context, what's happening probably in the Roman church is a kind of social persecution. And we think about this in our context. There are Christians around the world, brothers and sisters, who we are knit together with in Christ, who are facing incredible trials and persecutions. Um, Lord willing, Jennifer and I are going to India in a couple months to go do some ministry there in India with some of our brothers and sisters that we've visited the last few years, and persecution for Christians is heating up in India. It's a very hostile situation. The prime minister in India is, is very hostile to Christians. There's a, a nationalist party that is, is persecuting Christians physically, and although we haven't necessarily seen that in a widespread sort of way in our country, praise God, we certainly see social persecution that happens. And so as we think about this in our own lives, I want us to, to apply these verses to ourselves, but think of ourselves in a kind of circumspect, humble way, realizing that there are brothers and sisters all over the world that have been enduring and are enduring far worse than we have in the church in our context in America. But nevertheless, we, we face, as Christians, all Christians, Jesus has, has promised us that this will, will happen. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, he begins the Sermon on the Mount, the very early parts of his sermon there, speaking about this. And he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And just, just contrast the biblical view of persecution with the, the American view of persecution. And remember this truth that we want to we wanna bake on is that a right understanding of the gospel frees us from the tyranny of self-absorption. And in our culture, in our context, we are so often easily threatened as if persecution or any type of social ostracization because of the gospel is some violation of our rights, when in actuality, it should be the norm biblically. Listen to what, what Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, starting in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then listen to Paul in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He's writing this from prison. And what's noteworthy about Paul's prison epistle, in particular to the Philippians, is earlier on at the beginning part of chapter 1, he's talking about how he's, he's, he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's in prison in Rome, and he's saying, hey, good news. I've been thrown in prison. And because I've been thrown in prison, now I get to witness to the prison guards. Isn't this awesome? And that's Paul's perspective. And listen to what he says a a few verses later in verse 29 of Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you, that's a gift from God, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So let's just, before we move on to verse 15, let's just meditate on the, um, the, the canyon that often exists between the biblical perspective of persecution, suffering, and trial at the hands of a hostile culture from a biblical point of view in the New Testament, from Paul and Peter and Jesus, and from our perspective as 21st century Christians. There's, a, there's often a huge gap. Now, there's so much that we need to say. This isn't... A, a message on how we should be citizens, a full-orbed treatment of all that we could say about what it means to be a citizen in our context. Of course, we should fight for protections and all those things. We should, be, we should be good stewards of the graces and the freedoms that God has given us as Americans. I'm not saying we should just lay down those things and, and just let culture and politics and government and all those things do whatever they want to do to the church. We should be a good steward of this particular age that we live in. But let's just remember it all that there is this biblical perspective that this is not unusual. In fact, this is the norm for the majority of Christians. And of question sort of has been ruminating in my heart, if we on some level are not experiencing this, is it because maybe we are not living as biblically and as boldly as we should? And Paul is telling us here that there's a kind of selflessness that is in direct contrast oftentimes to our insistence on our rights as American citizens, where he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I'm sure this is a familiar verse to many of us. We quote it often, but something I, I noticed here as I was, as meditating on this passage this week, notice the order of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. He puts rejoicing before weeping because it is easier to sympathize than to celebrate. It's easier to sympathize with somebody when they're going through a tough time than it is to celebrate with them when they're going through a great time. But he says, look, rejoice. It's almost like it's, 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 it's easier in a sense. Hear me on this. It's kind of easier to weep with people because there's, you know, we're not threatened. Like, oh man, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. Let me just come around you. That's a wonderful thing. 
But isn't that a little bit harder when other people seem to be prospering and we're like, yeah, you, things are going great for you, but not for me. Isn't that more challenging? And see the selflessness, the, the lack of self-absorption that the gospel is calling us to, that Paul is calling us to as a result of everything that he said in Romans 1 through 11. Paul, I think here is saying to us, in, in essence, get outside of yourselves, forget about yourself, consider others more highly than yourself. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, he says, this is Paul speaking, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what is Paul doing there? He's, he's rooting our selflessness in the gospel itself. Because Christ has done this for you, because he laid down his life bore God's wrath for you if you are a, a, a Christian and made you alive, now because he owns you, because your life, as we read at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, is a living sacrifice to God, now your life should be lived and is a kind of picture of what God has done for you. So your life is to image, to display, to put on show how Christ has treated you by dying for you, by the way that you prefer other people. And I see so many beautiful examples of this in the life of our church. People coming around one another, weeping with each other, rejoicing with one another, celebrating each other. Praise God for that. Let's fan that into flame and see more of that in, in our lives and in this church. He continues, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And that's a, verse 16 is just, I think it's real clear. It's, it's easy to read, and I think it's easy to get what Paul is saying there. But come on now, isn't that, isn't that kind of hard to do? <laughs> All right, thank you, a couple of us. What, what are some obstacles to living out verse 16 for us? I, I think I think that our overexposure to one another's lives through the prism of social media has discipled us because of the remaining sin and insecurity that still rests within each of us, even if we're born-again Christians. It has discipled us to assume the worst of others. We're, we're sort of programmed this way. We've been falsely discipled by our culture to, to assume the worst of other people or other subcultures. And instead of making us humble and not haughty towards one another, it makes, it makes us proud. And we, we don't live in harmony with one another. We're, we're always picking at the other side, maybe even within the body of Christ, people that we might disagree with on some secondary point in harmony is hard, and we, we watch, come on now, we watch news shows where just the standard programming is having two people with opposite opinions yell at each other for 30 minutes. And if we, look, 
if we don't think that that has a kind of discipling effect on the way we view people that disagree with us, we are drinking Kool-Aid. It's the world's Kool-Aid. It's a kind of discipleship that happens because our culture is arrogant and always right. And it causes us to be arrogant towards one another. But Paul is telling us here, because of the fact that you were so low compared to a holy God, you were dead in your sins, and God, who is the supreme holy being, associated with you, he he loved you, he came to you, because of that, now, as a living sacrifice, remember the first couple verses of Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, we, as a display of the gospel in our lives, are free now. We're free, think of it that way, to associate with the lowly and to not be wise in our, our, own, our own sight. Our culture tells us that the lowly, people that are inconvenient or hard to love, are, are just an obstacle on the way towards you being all that you can be. In fact, I, 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 I know of people who have actually decided where to go to church based on who else goes there for the hope that maybe being around that group of people would improve their social or professional contacts. Friends, that's, that's, that's anti-gospel. But it even, we're even prone to it in here. There's, there's a kind of... There's a kind of gravitational pull that we all feel. And friends, I mean, I'm not scolding you. I feel this in my own heart, a kind of gravitational pull towards people that we feel are important or will make us in kind of the in crowd, even within a gospel-centered, I think, good, fruitful, Bible-centered, Christ-centered culture like Crosspoint. There's this kind of subliminal, subconscious pull that groups us towards people who, who just are easier to be around, that we think kind of will benefit us in some way. And it's not like we're socially or, or consciously making that decision. There's just a kind of gravitational, res residual, sinful pull towards people that make us feel better about ourselves. It, it, am I the only one? And we need to resist that, is what Paul is saying, because, why? Not because it's just good ethics, but because of the pull of the love of God that made him associate with us the lowliest of all. Associate with the lowly. What does that look like? Just, I, what does that look like in your life right now? Think about somebody that... that that you just would not be inclined to associate with, even in this room. And just say, Lord, help me, help me, help me associate with people not like me, people that um, cannot benefit me in any way. Let me yoke myself to them and love them and, and care for them as an expression of how you have loved me, Lord, in my unloveliness and lowliness before, before you. Never be wise in your own sight. It's just a kind of humility. I think another thing that social media has done to us is it's just brought about the death of expertise. You know, like before people 
that kind of knew what they were talking about would weigh in on a subject and we'd all kind of listen to them. Oh, but now, <laughs> like, everybody has a platform to say something. And I mean, I saw this guy, I mean, he just posted something on Facebook, so it must be true. Uh, it just makes us all kind of wise in our own sight. We've, we've lost a, a gospel virtue in our culture of humility. And then he goes on to say, repay, verse 17, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So if it is possible, and sometimes it's not, we can only control what we can control in our relationships. So far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. Now, there's much that I think we need to say about this. And in fact, when we look at how, how we are to interact with evil in our culture, I think Paul is giving us a kind of individual instruction as to how we are to posture ourselves. But as we'll look when we get into Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 is all about how God uses government and people within a culture to be his means of justice to handle evil people. So there are people in this room that are police officers or are, are military personnel who are actually God's means for dealing with evil. And I am very thankful that some of you are using those means to stop evil. So this isn't, this isn't a, a kind of call to a sort of pervasive, unbiblical pacifism. It's a call towards a kind of Christ-like humility where, where we realize that we are called to, as much as we can, live peaceably with all other people so as to commend the gospel and not our personal rights. I think that's what Paul is saying. The gospel frees us, before we move on to verse 19, which I think is a transition, the point I, I want us to see here, this first truth, is that the gospel frees us from the tyranny of self-absorption. Our culture disciples us to be easily threatened, to be hypersensitive. I have my rights, whereas the gospel frees us to give ourselves away, to lay down our rights, to fight for the good of others, and to not be surprised by a, by a fallen world around us. I, I think the crux of the issue here is whose glory is at stake, mine, my glory, my, my personal vindication, or the Lord's. I think that's what Paul is calling us to, to see here. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2. This is, I think, a, a wonderful summary of this point. Listen to how Peter describes the Christian life. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so he's writing to people that are citizens of heaven, Christians, from different ethnicities, different subcultures, and he's calling them a kind of a spiritual nation, a, a kingdom within a kingdom. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, listen to this picture he gives us. I urge you as sojourners. That's a word that means you're just passing through. 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep, listen to verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So look at verse 16 again. Live as people who are free. I think that's the, the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. L live because of what God has done. Think of, let's rehearse in our minds the gospel. Because of what God has done to reconcile you to himself, the most important thing in your life is that you are right with a holy God. Life is not just 80 or 90 years. It's an eternity. And you have, because you have Christ, all that there is to have. Now, you need not fight for yourself because there's nothing more for you to get. It's yours. All is yours. Christ is yours. So now, you're free, dear Christian. You're free to not be so bound up in personal vindication. I think that's what Paul is saying here. And now you are free to be persecuted, to be spoken poorly of, to be misunderstood. And when that happens, and it will happen, to not lose your bearings because even in the way you deal with that, your life is a kind of picture of the gospel to an, to an onlooking world. Friends, I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. I need this. Because I am prone, I am still very prone, still sometimes discouragingly prone to the opinions of people. And it, and it seems like a lot of my life is, is kind of licking my thumb and sticking it up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing as to whether or not everybody kind of likes me. And when we live like that, it, it absolutely undercuts our ability to do what Romans 12 is calling us to do, is live free from the tyranny of self-absorption because God has reconciled you to himself, therefore you have all that you need to have in Christ. And man, I mean, I believe this on Sunday, but friends, sure enough, Tuesday's coming, right? Sure enough. There's stuff I'm sure of that just flies away like a little birdie on Tuesday morning or Thursday morning. There's nothing in particular. I always say Tuesday morning. You guys probably think, man, what happens on Tuesday mornings in the office at Crosspoint? Is it that bad? No, it's just like any day in the middle of the week, right? We're prone to forget. Why? Because we have gospel amnesia. And the gospel frees us from the tyranny of self-absorption. 
Friends, do you, do you see that? Do you see, do you see how when we see that, connect it to the good news of the gospel, Romans 12 verses 14 and following isn't just prescriptions on, on ethics. It's, it's how we are free to live in light of how God has reconciled us to himself. That's, that's the point. Okay, let's keep going. And now, verses 19 through 21, I think, gives us a transition to the second truth, is that the gospel assures us that God's justice will surely triumph. It will surely triumph. And one of the reasons we don't need to repay evil for evil is because God will take care of it all. I think that's what verses 19 through 21 are telling us. So let's read verses 19 through 21. He says, Beloved, never... You know what? That word's a strong word, beloved. I think we should... I think we should... I think we should um, recapture that word. Man, that's a biblical word. You know when you, beloved, you know what beloved means? It means that, that not because of anything good in you, but because of God's grace for you, he loves you in Christ. Beloved. So it's not just a, a sort of ho-hum, antiquated English greeting. It's a biblical word that means that you, church, because of God's grace, not because of anything good in you, not because of anything works that you have done, but because of the grace of God and his son to take your dead heart, give you heart surgery, take your dead heart out, give you a a new heart so that you could believe in Jesus and turn away from trusting in yourself and turn away from sin and be reconciled to holy God because of that love. This is who you are, beloved. That's a family term, man. That's not just better than justified. It's better than saved. It's a family term. Beloved. Let's start saying that to each other, all right? Beloved. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says then in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's quoting there from Proverbs chapter 25. And then he says in verse 21 as a summary statement, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so let's look at these three verses here. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Remember this idea of the wrath of God. In fact, in the first chapter of Romans, um, Paul talks about how the wrath of God, the judgment, the holiness of God, has been revealed against all mankind. In other words, we are all by nature right objects of God's wrath because all of us, now this may run very contrary to the, to, to the message that maybe you grew up hearing, but the Bible's very clear that God has created a world that he knew would fall and he allowed it to fall. In fact, he allowed every person that he created to fall and to actually, as the Bible says, be born separated from him in sin 
to be born spiritually dead so that as a display of his saving grace for the purposes of his glory to save a great multitude of people from his wrath, that, that he would be most glorified. And so the Bible is utterly clear that since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, all of us are separated from God because we've inherited the sin nature of our first parents. We are by nature now sinners and the wrath of God is against us. And right there in verse 19 is a kind of reminder of the gospel. It's the only reason that you are beloved and the wrath of God is not barreling down on us is because of the gospel that he's outlined for us in chapters 1 through 11. You are beloved not just because God has waved a magic wand or you were born in the South, or you grew up in a Christian family, you are beloved and no longer under the wrath of God because God gave you a new heart, the gift of faith opened up your eyes and caused you to behold and be grafted into Christ. But he says now we're living in a world where that is not true of everybody. So now... I think he's pointing us to the end of this age where there is a day when God will bring final and full justice. Every person will stand before their creator God. Every evil deed, every crime against humanity, everything will be finally and fully judged. And there will only be two types of people on that day. There will be those who are in Christ and therefore their sin is taken care of because Jesus on the cross was judged for them and found innocent and victorious and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. The wrath of God being satisfied by Christ's perfection or there will be those that are outside of Christ who are not trusting in him who will face the vengeance, the wrath of God. Friends, that's, there are only two types of people in the world. Either those who are in Christ or those who are not in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here, as important as temporary things seem, Paul is assuring us that there is coming full and final justice on that day. And so therefore, give it over to God. Yes, we're going to read Romans 13 about how God brings a kind of temporary cultural justice through civil governments that even though they may not be Christian, he uses to bring his justice in a temporary sense. But in a final, full, and eternal sense, we need not worry whether or not everything is right now because there's coming a day when it all will be right. And then verse 20, and by the way, friends, when, when we, when we, before we move on to verse 20, which is a little confusing if we don't really stare at it for a moment, let's just remember, I think one of the reasons he calls us beloved is to remind us of the gospel. When we think about all of the enemies of God in our culture around us, we might think, oh, well, yeah, God, bring the heat, man. Bring the heat on them. Shock and awe on those guys. Right? But let's remember what he has said about us Earlier on in Romans 5, he says, Romans 5, for if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So we were the ones who were enemies of God before he saved us. So again, shouldn't that humble our posture as we look at a world around us? Not with self-righteous indignation, but with humble confidence that by the way we live the Christian life, God may use our lives as a mean means by which he draws former enemies and makes them his beloved. That's, I think, the point of this text. Live in a way that you are the means of grace by which God makes enemies into his beloved because that's who you were too. And he says here in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now this, I think we have to think about this carefully. Paul here is not advocating that we act kind to people for the purposes of them sort of being judged and heaped up with more damnation on their head. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying feed him, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you're getting personally vindicated and you can kind of, you know, do a little victory dance when they get judged. That's, that's not it. Rather, he's saying, that through us, God is being kind to people. And if the means of our gospel-centered kindness, which is pointing them to Christ, does not lead to their repentance, their guilt will be increased, I think. Because God is being kind to... Think about this picture. He's saying that the lives of Christians should be a kind of kindness to God so that if the world rejects the gospel witness of our lives, they are in a sense even more responsible than people who just rejected God without the kindness of Christians around them. Think about that. This is what he says. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verses... uh, Four and five, he says this. He says about the kindness of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, impenitent meaning stubborn, your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So in other words, he's speaking to people there and he's saying, God's being kind to you. He's being kind to you. And if you keep resisting him, it's like you're making it doubly worse for yourself on that day because he's being kind to you. Well, what he's saying here to Christians in Romans chapter 12 is that the way God is kind to people in this instance, is through us. Through us. Doesn't that impact how you speak to the person who's a foreigner on the phone who is a technical help for your computer when it's slow? I've heard from missionaries in India that one of the hindrances, I'm not being hyperbolic here, just a little, little you know, shock, a little slap for the, but I've heard this from a brother who served as, an, as a Christian in India, as a, as a missionary in India, 
that one of the challenges to the gospel in his city, he was a, Christian, he was a missionary in the city of Bangalore, India, which is a hub of technology, which is where a lot of the help desk people that you would call for some technical help in the United States is staffed by Indian people who live in Bangalore talking to Americans on the phone. And one of the greatest obstacles that he had as a missionary, an American missionary, trying to bring the gospel to Bangalore is the way Americans treated tech people on the phone when they would call for help. I mean, come on, come on. It is easy, friends. It's easy to leave this room and be rude to a waitress or angry at somebody in traffic or frustrated over the most minor of inconveniences. Why? Because we need the gospel to more captivate our hearts. So how do we, how do we then overcome evil? How, how do we not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good? Friends, I think by just fiercely reminding ourselves of the gospel, as hopefully we have done this morning, by realizing the necessity of Christian community, by living life together with other Christians, by, 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 by venturing out as missionaries into our culture, by coming back together to renew our commitment to to gospel-centeredness, to living lives of mission, by remembering the gospel, remembering that we were enemies, but now knowing that we're beloved, by trusting again afresh in what God has done. How do we then not be overcome by evil and overcome evil with good? I think by rehearsing, remembering the gospel, living life in gospel community, and remembering that God is using us collectively together to be kind of gospel witnesses in our culture. When he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he's not saying that we need to counterbalance all of the evil in the world with our good deeds. Although certainly living lives of good deeds should be the result of the Christian life. Rather, I think he's saying that it is faith in Christ, living a kind of gospel-centered life, and the life that flows from that saving faith Trusting faith would commend and clarify to an onlooking world what it means to be right with God. How do we overcome the world? By clinging to Christ. Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, You are, or John 16, take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do we live in this way, this, this, this beautiful way that Paul has sketched out for us by clinging to Christ, by remembering we were enemies, by knowing that we're his beloved by grace, by trusting in Christ, and by being free from tyranny of self that still pollutes us 
And by knowing that in the end, God will surely triumph. And so I am free now to not bring temporary justice for all the little injustices that I suffer, but to give uh, my life away for the sake of displaying Christ. Oh, friends, this is beautiful. There's more joy in this, and there's no way we can do this on our own. Isn't this hard, man? Isn't this hard? But isn't this beautiful? And isn't this just, isn't this just more joy at the end of this? And that's the Christian life in community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful sketch of how we are to be living epistles, living letters that you have written to an onlooking world. Lord, you, you used this very truth to bring us to faith, whether it was our mom or a dad who led us to Christ at an early age, or whether it was a church, a Sunday school teacher, a youth pastor at a young age, or whether it was later on a Christian friend or a preacher or some gospel message or book that we read, Lord, you've used your beloved to draw us who were enemies to you to yourself through this kind of Christ-centered aroma in your people. Lord, help us to live in this way. Help us to be living sacrifices to an onlooking world. May we associate with the lowly. Lord, as we leave this building today, may our heads be on a swivel for the lowly. Lord, we confess our arrogance. We confess our judgmentalism. We, all, we, we, we think we're right. But may we not be wise in our own sight. May we be humble May our words be few. Lord, may we listen more than we speak. May we have this fierce confidence that you will finally and fully make all things right. And therefore, we're free, Lord. We're free to be winsome, joyful, eternity-focused witnesses in this broken world that hates you. And Lord, may, may you be so pleased as through the life of people in this room to make your enemies your beloved. And may the fact that you've done that for many of us in this room cause us to worship you afresh today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.